are new every morning and that great is your faithfulness. We see the wonder of your creation in all of the leaves that have popped out in the green of the grass, the blue, the brightness of the sky. And God, we just think how amazing you are, that you made all these, that you didn't make them the way that we make things, but that you made them just by speaking them into existence. And that through them, you call people to yourself so that they can learn the specific way that you have made for us to be justified, to be in right standing with you. So Father, as we sing the words this morning, as we recite words of the Apostles' Creed that remind us of the faith that has been held and paid such a great price for, for the persecution that saints who went before us faced, and for the persecution that Christians now are facing. Father, we pray that you would give your strength and your blessing to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering in other parts of the world, that you would help them to be able to persevere, having fixed their eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that then we would have that hope set before us. So, Father, may you be pleased with the meditations of our hearts, with our thoughts, and with our voices as we raise them in praise to you this morning for your please stand and join with your mercy in Jesus name through your spirit amen please stand and join with us in singing
You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. That's nice to hear. You know, one of the things that we want to make clear to one another uh, is that we are here for a purpose. It's not because we feel obligated to be here. It's not because, you know, we can't find anything better to do on a Sunday morning. But there's a reason behind our gathering. And that reason is found in what we believe. If, if we were to go out in the world, I mean, would you, would you say it's an easy thing to articulate what it is that you believe in? And when I mean that, I'm just not like, hey, I believe the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. I believe that uh, the school year is about to come to an end. I, I believe in these things. I'm talking about what are the beliefs that are the core of your being, the very center of who you are, that help dictate how you live and where you go and, and the decisions you make in this life. The question, the question of what you believe is, is actually a very difficult thing, and it has been since Jesus founded his church. And yet, the church has recognized that and sought to look back on the scriptures, to look back on what God has declared through his word and, and, and tried to define what is it that we believe. If I believe that I am a child of God, what does that mean? Does it just mean that I'm under God's protection or does it actually mean that I believe certain things about this world and about God and about me as, as one of his children? And, and what do those beliefs imply? You know, we're starting somewhat of a new tradition or uh, recapturing an old tradition in a new way here at Trinity in that every month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we want to we recite together the, Lord, or the, the Apostles' Creed or, or some other creed of the faith. But specifically, we're going to be focusing on the Apostles' Creed in the months to come. And, and after we did that a while back, someone came up to me and they said, hey, you know, I love that we recite the Apostles' Creed, but, but sometimes it's hard to, to actually really think about what is it we believe? What does that mean, what we just said? And so one of the things we want to do is take time to consider the words of the Apostles' Creed and, and what it means. So this is not just something we recite and say and move on to the next part in our liturgy, our time of worship, but that we allow those words to sink in to carry their meaning into the depth of our being, and that we can say, amen, yes, I do believe that. One of those uh, phrases in the Apostles' Creed that I thought, hey, you know what, let's just jump right to it and, and, and address kind of the, the elephant in the room, it, it, is that moment in the Apostles' Creed when we say that we believe in one holy Catholic church. Now, uh, there has been since the Reformation a, a, a struggle to understand what that phrase means. Is it is its origins in the, the Holy Roman Catholic Church under the, the, the oversight of the Pope? Or, or does it have actually a, a higher authority? Does that, the authority and the meaning of this phrase actually find its roots in the text of God's Word, the, the Scriptures themselves? And that's where I think I want to encourage you to consider. We use that word Catholic Church to refer to the Catholic Church that we experience when we drive around our towns and we see the Roman Catholic Church. But that phrase, as the church fathers meant it in the Apostles' Creed when they formulated this creed, was to encourage us to consider that this idea of faith, this communion of the people of God, is actually meant to describe the people of God throughout all time centered around these truths that we affirm today. It, the, the, the word Catholic comes from a, a Greek word combining two that means throughout the whole, 
In other words, that, that we are, we're all together one in Jesus Christ. Not in, not in the converged church or, or the Methodist church or the, the, the Presbyterian church. We're one in Jesus Christ. Peter talks in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He writes this, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's talking about a body of people. Good morning, Anya. He's talking about a people that are united by not something in them, not, some, not part of their DNA or their genetics or their, their, their family heritage or their cultural background, but in Jesus Christ, something outside of themselves, the Son of God who descended to this earth, took on the form of man, was obedient to the Father even unto death, rose from the grave, and has won a way for us to have peace with God through his shed blood. That's what unites us. And, and not only us here in, in Fairfield County, but throughout all time and out, all spaces, all those who believe in Jesus Christ. We are a holy priesthood, a spiritual house that God is building. One last verse from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We're told you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. Do you believe that you're a part of that movement, that holy priesthood, that chosen race, the people of God united in Jesus Christ himself? Because when we declare, I believe in the holy Catholic church, that's what we're declaring that we believe that we are a part of something bigger and broader than us, something that is empowered by something outside of ourselves, something that is influenced and shaped by Jesus Christ, not our own will or our own preferences or our own desires. So it may be just a few short words that we recite in the Apostles' Creed, but man, it carries meaning and significance. And for us to declare that is not just an affirmation of our hearts and minds and lives, but it should be the thing that sends us forth to know that we're not going out into this world on our own, but we're a part of a bigger thing that's founded in Jesus Christ, the very one that unites us and brings us together and makes it possible for us to be called a chosen race, a, a, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. So church, we're going to get the chance to celebrate that together as we recite the Apostles' Creed this morning. Because we'll recite part of the Apostles' Creed together. And then what we want you to see is that this song is a great vehicle for you to be able to easily memorize or review the Apostles' Creed. So that then we'll intersperse it with the song, This I Believe. So please join us as we now read together these opening words from the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Our Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty, through your Holy Spirit conceiving 
was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Jesus, that these words are every bit as true now as they were when the apostles agreed for the men gathered around what it is to be a Christian. Thank you for the privilege of being able to be here to worship you and to remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You know, it's appropriate that as we think about the Lord's Supper, which we're about to celebrate, 
that we consider the fact that Jesus knew how important it would be to give a reminder for his people of what it means to be united in Christ, to be a part of this fellowship, to be of this, this, this family of God. And so we're told that on the night that he was betrayed, he gathered his, his disciples and he shared a meal with them. And in this meal, he, he gave them some very passionate, heartfelt instructions. And not only that, he gave them instructions on living the Christian life, on living as a follower of Jesus, but he prayed for them. He, he, Jesus prayed for his closest disciples, but he prayed for you and I as well. You can read all this captured in, in John chapter 13 through 17, where it recounts the the, the, the night that Jesus was betrayed before his crucifixion. But also, you can consider the fact that, that, that Jesus, not just in praying for us and giving us instructions, he established this very special celebration, the celebration uh, of his death and resurrection through eating of the bread and drinking of the, the wine. And so, this table that we celebrate today, the table of communion, is an invitation for all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ to celebrate with us this morning. Whether you are a regular attender here or not, whether you're here in the room or online, that you can celebrate what Jesus began so long ago through this special time in our worship where we turn our attention to God and not just what he will do, what he's promised to do, but what he has done through giving us his son, Jesus. We're told that on the, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples, and after the supper, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks for the bread, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, church, we take of the body in remembrance of Jesus. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup. And, and he talks about the cup as being his shed blood. His blood which washes over our sins, which though they are scarlet will be made white as snow. And so Jesus invites all of his followers, not just those disciples that were gathered with him there on that night, but he invites all of us to take the cup, hearing his words that this is the new covenant in my blood. Hearing his instructions, then, we do this as often as we drink of it in remembrance of him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks because you have shown your love for this world not just in thought, it was not some abstract idea, but practically, tangibly in sending your Son that he might overcome sin and darkness and evil through his own death. 
just as he was raised to life, that his shed blood might cover our sins, and that as he is raised to life, we too are raised to life with him, clothed afresh and anew in hearts that have been washed white as snow. Lord, we give you thanks, thanks for that. In fact, Lord, we give you thanks knowing that uh, that, that does not make sense to my, my, my logical mind that, that I could be forgiven and made afresh by no effort of my own, purely by accepting the gift that Jesus offers me. So, Lord, may that truth fill our hearts to overflowing with gratitude that you are a God, a gracious God, who comes to his people when they don't deserve it, fights on our behalf, gives us new life through your son's death and resurrection. Lord, we give you thanks for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, children, at this time in the service, you are dismissed for Sunday school. Members of the worship team are celebrating right now that I remembered that. And Donna is too back there. Well, this week we are picking up in Daniel chapter 5. I hope that you have enjoyed this series we've been in in uh, the Old Testament book of Daniel, which uh, can be a, a little bit of a challenge from time to time, but, but hopefully you felt that challenge as well. And, and uh, you know, as I tell my son when we go to kind of work out together or whatever, you know, some pain is not, not bad. Some pain is a good pain. And, and, and sometimes considering uh, God's sovereignty and, and what we believe about that can bring about pain, but it's a good pain because it challenges us. Uh, this morning as we, as we get ready to take a look closer at Daniel chapter 5, I want to ask you a question. Do you ever wonder what a healthy pastor wants most for his church or for the church? And I, and I emphasize healthy because I know what an unhealthy pastor may want. He wants, you know, a budget that's overflowing with money to spend wherever he wants. He wants pews overflowing with, with people who are there to, to hear him preach or whatever. That's an unhealthy pastor, right? The, uh, a pastor that wants to feed his own ego and pride. And, and, and rest assured, every pastor risks that temptation. So don't, don't let me, uh, don't, don't get me wrong here in the question I'm asking. What I'm asking is, what does a healthy pastor want most for the church? You ever thought about that? What, what would the, the healthy pastor want to see going on in the congregation? I think what a healthy pastor probably wants most, I say probably because I can't say for sure, but, but I know what in my healthiest of days what I would want for all of us is that we would see a people of God living faithfully in light of God's sovereignty. A healthy pastor longs for a church that doesn't just talk about generosity or, or loving our neighbors, but one that actually lives those values out. They, they, would, they, they would be a church that doesn't just talk about God's holiness and, and worship him on a Sunday and make a big show of that. They would live lives that reflect that belief every day 
of every year. So I think we respect human authority, but ultimately we want to be a church that is obedient to and accountable to God and his authority over all of our lives. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this is what the, the church is meant to be, a church of people that, that are living uh, just with this healthy respect and, and obedience and accountability to God's authority over our lives. See, this morning as we consider the story of Daniel and the Babylonian king Belshazzar, I want you to pay attention to something. I, I want you to pay attention to two contrasting characters in this chapter, Belshazzar and, and Daniel. Because I think that as we look at their two lives, as we consider this chapter in their lives together, we see two contrasting characters. One who has learned what it means to live in light of God's sovereignty, and one who has a complete disregard for God's sovereignty. And so here in Daniel chapter 5, we, we meet Belshazzar. He's a, another uh, Babylonian king, or actually he's not even really a king. We'll get to that in a little bit. But, but he's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. We remember Nebuchadnezzar. We've been studying him a little bit these last few weeks. But after Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy, goes in the wild, regains his kingdom again after God restores it to him, he, he'll eventually die. And as he does, his son, King Nabonidus, takes over. Well, Nabonidus goes on a, a little bit of a 10-year uh, sojourn in the desert, as history tells us. And, and while he's there in the desert, Belshazzar is kind of left to fill in his dad's shoes, and fill in the role as king, even though he's not really the king. And where chapter 5 picks up, Belshazzar is kind of living in this false reality of, man, isn't it good to be king? Look at the power and the authority I have. I'm going to throw a big party. And so Belshazzar throws this feast for, it says, over a thousand nobles of his, thousand leaders in his kingdom. But not just that, all of Belshazzar's wives and concubines, this is a feast that's described with lots of drinking and partying, and, and where the story takes an odd and drastic turn is that while this feast is going on, Belshazzar notices this, this hand, not, not a body, not an arm, a hand comes out and just starts writing on the wall. Now, I mean, picture this, if I'm, I'm standing here preaching, all of a sudden, I mean, I didn't do this, but if I could have put it on the projection screen. All of a sudden, this hand starts writing on. I should have if I had thought of it sooner. That would have been creepy, right? But, but imagine this hand just starts writing on the wall behind me. I mean, what might our reaction be? Well, you know, it might be like, we're, like Belshazzar's reaction is recorded in here in chapter 5. His knees start knocking. It says his, his hips go slack. I mean, he turns pale and be... It says he becomes alarmed. I feel like alarmed is a little bit of an understatement. If your knees are knocking, your hips go slack, that's a little bit of an understatement, right? But, but it's also, I would think, a logical response. Like, and that might happen to me too. Or, or maybe I just, like, leave you all here and I go running. I'd, I'd run out of the room or something like that. The fact of the matter is, there's this strange incident that happens in the midst of this feast, and no one can interpret what's going on. Belshazzar, like his father and his grandfather, call upon all of his magicians and conjurers, and no one can interpret it until the queen mother comes in and says, hey, Belshazzar, don't forget, there's a man who your grandfather, when he defeated Israel, brought back in exile. His name is Belteshazzar. 
Belteshazzar, right, which his real name is Daniel, and it kind of talks about this as like, look, we still have power. We still, look at this, this, this refugee who we've exiled here. He's under our control. We've, you know, he serves our kingdom. You still have him to call on, right? And as every good son or grandson does, he listens to his queen mother, right? And so he calls in Daniel. Now, at this point in Daniel's life, he's about 85 years old. So let's, let's take this image of, of this youthful, wise Daniel and set it aside. And let's recapture this idea of this uh, more mature, uh, wise man. I say more mature because mature in years, but also mature in wisdom and experience. And, and Daniel is invited to come before the king. And, and again, since no one could interpret this situation for him, and, and King Belshazzar's knees are knocking, his hip is slack, he's sitting here thinking, oh man, I step in for my dad and pretend to be king for a little bit, and look what happens, right? And because all this is going on, he's like, I'm, I'm not going to let this moment slip me by. And so he offers Daniel, he, he offers to pay Daniel in gold necklaces and things like that. He offers to give him this powerful title in his kingdom if he would interpret what's happened here with this hand writing on the wall. And we're going to read that response, that interpretation that Daniel offers King Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Daniel chapter 5, and I'm going to pick up in verse 17. We're going to read the second half of the chapter together to really get an idea of, of what happened in this strange moment. Let me read it for us. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys." He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you had lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which, you, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. 
Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. <laughs> that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And though this is a strange passage to consider, a, a, a strange thing happening here, not just in Daniel's life, but in this foreign king's life, Lord, we pray for wisdom and understanding. We know that wisdom and understanding is in your hands and, and comes from you. And so, Lord, would you bless us with your, uh, with your wisdom and understanding here, that it would not just be knowledge that puffs up, but it would be a knowledge that, that transforms us from the inside out that we might find courage to follow you in faith, that we might find comfort in, in, in taking refuge in you, that we might find, might find hope in the wisdom that is yours. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, Belshazzar is somewhat of the poster child. He's the, the poster child of what it looks like to ignore God as sovereign over this world, and over our lives. Think about Belshazzar. Think about what his life portrays, what, what his life has come to. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. These are words that are, that are God's way of saying that, that Belshazzar's life has been measured, that, that, that his life has been judged divinely by God. That he's looked at the, the, the fullness of his life. Not, not the snapshot of a moment, but this is measuring the fullness of his life. And what it measures up to is something very lacking. His days are numbered. His authority in his kingdom is at its end. And, and so when God places him on the scale of justice and righteousness and goodness, you can imagine what this scale looks like, looks like it's not in balance. I picture a weight scale with two sides. You know those ones you maybe use in, in science class or whatever where there's, there's a, the two kind of uh, tablets or, or, or plates that, that you have on either side, and if what's on this side is equal in measurement to this side, then they'll be balanced. But if they're not equal in measurement, they'll be uneven. They'll be unevenly balanced. Say, say you want to know what your weight is in gold. Well, what you would do is you'd, you'd step on a human-sized scale of what this is, and you'd stand on one side, and you'd start adding gold to the other side of the scale until you're measured equally, until you're, until you're balanced out. And you say, here's me, and that big pile of gold over there is what I'm worth in gold, how much I weigh in gold, right? God, as the divine sovereign over this world, has a desire for people to measure up to a standard that only he can describe and only he can define. Why? Because he created it all. He created us to meet a standard, to, to be a certain way, to fulfill a goodness and righteousness that only God can define. And in God's economy, Belshazzar comes nowhere close to that. In God's economy, the only measure that matters is your measurement according to your creator's standard. The hand tells us that Belshazzar's life was lacking in measuring up to this. Daniel goes on in the interpretation to explain that not only has God promised now to take away Belshazzar's kingdom, 
but he would give it to the Medes and the Persians, a, a foreign kingdom. This is, this is kind of important historically because there's, uh, there, there have been prophecies that have been told that have given order the progression of foreign kingdoms and the Medes and the Persians were next in line and they take over. I think it's fair to say that, that in all of this, what God's making clear is that Belshazzar's trust was not in God's sovereignty. Belshazzar's trust was in himself. His trust in, in God's sovereignty, it was, his trust was in something other than God's sovereignty, other than God's power, other than God's ability to provide and guide and direct his people. But, but what I want us to focus on then this morning is not so much the historical narrative of the Chaldeans' fall to the Medes and the Persians, but the reason behind this fall. I want us to ask questions of Belshazzar. I want us to ask about his life. The questions that give us insight into why he doesn't measure up to the standard of trusting in God. See, I think Daniel clues us into three ways that Belshazzar fails to trust in God. Three ways that we can pick up from the text this morning. Those three ways are his selfish pride, his failure to live in, in line with God's holiness, and worshiping false gods. Now, I mean, if you think about it, we, we, we like to focus in on, on some of these, like, you know, being aware of the, the pride in other people or even being aware of our own pride, being aware of, uh, of the many false gods that are in this world and people that worship them. But it's not about one or the other. It's recognizing that God's standard of measurement captures all of these things. And any one of these out of balance from another will still cause that divine judgment to say you have not measured up to the standard of your heavenly father. Let's take a look real quickly first at, at this idea of the, the pride and the selfishness that's in Belshazzar. Take a look at verse 22 and 23 with me again. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted, your, lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. See, the all this that, that Belshazzar knew was all that God had done for his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. All that had happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life, Belshazzar would have been well aware of. So even though he was the son of Nabonidus, it still meant that he would have been aware of his family history, his heritage. He would have known what his grandfather had gone through. This is not just his family heritage. This is the, the history of his, king, of his kingdom, his nation. So Belshazzar would have been aware of this, even though his father was off in the desert somewhere. His, he would have grown up being taught the history of, uh, of the Chaldeans. He would have known about Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace. He would have been aware of di Daniel's divine gift of interpreting dreams and visions because he would have heard about Daniel and his friends. When the queen mother comes in and says, hey, you know, you've got this man from your grandfather's kingdom that, that can interpret this dream, that wasn't news to him. It was a reminder, right? See, Belshazzar would have been well aware of all of his grandfather's unhindered selfish pride, which led to his time living in the wilderness and, and, and sweating and, uh, like beasts of the, of the field and eating grass like the beasts. He also would have been aware of Nebuchadnezzar's return to the throne, that when he recognized the Most High God has authority over 
the kingdoms of mankind. Belshazzar would have been taught that because it was an integral part of his nation's history as well. Now, the excuse I used the most growing up to get out of trouble for bad behavior was, oh, I, I didn't know, right? I'm sure we've all used that excuse, but it was a lie, right? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were, you were not done eating that pizza on your plate. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that having the TV this loud on a Saturday morning would wake you up. I, I didn't know that, 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 that you don't like it when I leave my dirty laundry on, on the floor. See, the fact of the matter is, I did know. And so does Belshazzar. See, though, though Belshazzar knew of who God was from his grandfather and, and knew of the might and majesty of God from Nebuchadnezzar, and, 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 and though he knew of God's rightful authority over human kings, Belshazzar never changed his ways. He, he never changed his living in light of this truth. Church, we do this sometimes, don't we? We, we talk about what we believe in the Bible, but we never change the way we live our lives in accordance about, of, of what we learn to be true. This is why we talk about what we, what we believe in the Apostles' Creed. Not just so we can say that we, we have the right knowledge of, of knowing God, but so that it can be that reminder and accountability that we need to live in accordance with what we believe about God. There may be ways in our lives that we need to change. But like King Belshazzar, we never change our ways. See, Belshazzar's sin was not an accident. It wasn't ignorance. It wasn't like, oh, I never knew that. I'm so sorry. Belshazzar's sin was intentional. He, he knew what he was doing in his pride. He, he knew that, that he was pretending to be king while his father was off in the wilderness. He knew he was kind of, he, he got sucked into the temptation of power and authority that could be his. And so he throws this huge feast. Here's where it gets even messier. In the midst of this gigantic feast, he pulls these sacred vessels that have been set apart for worship in the temple. He goes, hey guys, we ran out of red solo cups. Let's start using these, right? Let's start filling these gold, gold glasses up with, with wine and, and, and let's let the party continue, right? He scoffs at God. God can't tell me what's holy. God can't tell me. I'm king. I'm, I'm, I'm the one that's in, in the role of king right now, right? Belshazzar knew. He knew what was going on. In Psalm 10, David writes this, that the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. That's what Belshazzar is doing. He's cursing and renouncing the Lord. It says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, we don't say there is no God. I know that, but our actions do. Right? Sometimes, again, I can't remember who said this, but when they, you know, that saying, actions speak louder than words, you know, it doesn't count to just come in here uh, on Sunday or Wednesday night or, or, or Thursday morning or, or Wednesday morning or, or Tuesday morning or meeting online. It doesn't count to, to say these things when we gather together, but then our actions defy us. They, they, they kind of, they defy what our heart truly 
is believing in. We like to read the scriptures and think, this is about them. This is about the world. This has nothing to do with me, right? This is about Belshazzar and those foreign kings and how they have no knowledge of God and how to live according to his word. Do the actions of our lives betray the thoughts of our minds? Does it, does it betray, do our actions betray what we truly believe in our hearts? You know, it, it, there, there's a, there was a moment I had this past week with someone, honestly, this is not like I have a friend. There, this is a person that was not, not associated with this church, right? And this person at, at one point had said to me, um, you know, someone said something hurtful to them. They said, you know, out of, the, out of the mouth comes the abundance of the heart, right? They're quoting scripture talking about how, you know, they say they're a Christian, but th- what they said was really hurtful. I, you know, I, I had this moment where I, I, I saw this person doing something that was immoral, unethical. And I thought, how can, you, how, how can you say, how can you make this declaration about a brother in Christ and say how evil and wicked they are because they said something hurtful? And then turn around and do something that is immoral and unethical and, and find nothing wrong with that. See, the reality is there, there is, our, our actions are not always in line with, with our heart and our mind. And, and I think that this is that place not for us to beat ourselves up, but for us to open our eyes, our, our ears, our hearts and minds and really ask the Lord, God, seek uh, search my heart. Know my ways. Lead me in your, in your way everlasting. Right? See, our actions can at times betray what we say we believe to be true. Belshazzar's pride in himself essentially betrayed the belief of, of his heart. And I say that in the sense not that it... That, that his actions went against what he believed in his heart, but what his actions did was reveal what he truly believed in his heart. They believed that he, he or they betrayed, they, they revealed that he said, there is no God. I am king. I am the sovereign. I am the one with authority. I can, I, I can let us drink from whatever cup we want to drink from. Doesn't, God's holiness doesn't matter. What matters is what I say. That's what Belshazzar believes. The second area in which Belshazzar failed to trust God is in trusting that God is actually the gold standard to which life should measure up. In other words, holiness is defined by God, not by man. God defines what is right and just and good, not man. Take a look at verse 23 again with me. Uh, But you, Belshazzar, have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. See, the, the error, the, the, the sin, the failure the, that Belshazzar has committed here is he's taken these holy vessels that God had set apart for, for temple worship under the Mosaic law and just used them as any common cup, any common instrument. They're not common. Under Old Testament Mosaic law, which they were living under at the time, those were set apart that they would be used for nothing but in the space of worshiping God. 
of glorifying him, of, of recognizing his holiness and his goodness and his sovereignty. So the question is, what, what message is Belshazzar communicating about his relationship with the Most High God? He's not only saying that God is non-existent, he's defiling God, he's spitting on God. Right? It's, it's more than just saying, oh, I don't believe in God. It's going that extra mile to kind of smear God and step on him and smush him. Right? The temple and tel- temple worship was a space set apart. It was holy in God's creation. It was meant to be there for God's people to meet with God. But for, but for Belshazzar, inviting his guests to drink out of the temple vessels was, was just this dysfunctional way of flaunting his pretend authority. It, it was his way of pretending to be God, to be the one with power and authority. Now, I don't think anyone would want to admit it, I think we're all guilty of times of being too casual in our worship of God. I have been too casual in my worship of God. Now, I'm not just talking about Sunday morning, right? I'm talking about Monday through Sunday. I think it's easy for us to fault the, the, the people who are on baseball fields or soccer fields or football fields on Sunday morning and say, man, look, they don't, they don't really value worshiping God. But we're no different. When, when, we, when, we, when we kind of just allocate 15 minutes a day to, to thinking about God and that's it, I mean, where's the value? Where's the treasure in knowing God? Now, I'm, I'm going to take, for example, our Bibles. Don't, uh, you don't need to do anything with this. Just ask yourself this question. How many of us have our Bibles with us this morning? I mean, I do because I have to, right? I mean, like, I, I'm, not, I'm not putting myself up in a, a higher place. Like, I, I've got my library downstairs. I could go grab one whenever I need to and say, oh, I've got my Bible with me. But it was here already. I didn't bring it from home, right? So, so I'm, not, I'm not above you or, or anything, but how many of us have our Bibles with us this morning? How many of us know where our Bibles are, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. I am thankful for technology. I love that we could just pull out our phones pull it up. We have, we've, we've actually, we've, we've facilitated this, right? We've got our app that, that makes it available to us. It's a good thing. We want to make sure that God's word is in anyone's hands that wants it or needs it. But in terms of treasuring God and, and, and valuing our worship of him, do you, do you have a Bible? Do you, do you, do you have, own a copy of God's word? Not so you can carried around like a weapon and say, look how holy I am. But because it matters to you, it's valuable to you, it's, it's something you treasure, right? See, in the New Testament, Jesus tells his followers that where their treasure is, there their heart will be as well. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. Do you treasure God? I mean, uh, is it more than just praying a prayer to say, whew, I'm safe, I'm good? Or do you realize that the God of all creation loves you so very much and wants more than just to save you from sin, but to have a relationship with you where he can pour out his love on you, not just on Sunday mornings, but every moment of every day? The way to facilitate that is to know God 
and to know him through the word that he has given us, through the ways that he's revealed himself to us. The scriptures are not some ancient book that is just good for us to learn about God. They're God's very self-revelation of who he is, a treasure, a treasure for us. Belshazzar had no concern to treasure God or, or what he had to offer them. His treasure was the currency of the day, was silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone. These were his gods. These guys can't provide, they can't protect. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but, but this is actually kind of bleeding into that third area, that third failure that Belshazzar commits in, in kind of scoffing at, at the sovereignty of God. It's this idea of worshiping false gods rather than treasuring what God offers us through Jesus Christ, a relationship with the God of all creation, not based on our merits or our abilities or, or what we, our, our successes or our failures, but purely based on his love for this world through his son, Jesus Christ. So Belshazzar fails to trust in God's sovereignty in, in turning to worship false gods rather than the God of all creation. Take, take a look one more time at verse 23. Daniel tells Belshazzar that he's praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and, and iron, wood and stone, which, listen to this, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. I mean, church, let's face it. Temptation to worship false gods is a temptation we face every moment of every day. It's out there. We live in a world surrounded by things that, that bring us joy and comfort and, and, and satisfaction and, 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 and a false sense of security, right? Lots of things. And Belshazzar's heart was, was focused on honoring the things of the day that kind of that tickled his ear, that, that, that made him feel good for a little bit. Things that he had control over. He, could, he, he had the kind of riches where he can kind of control those things and actually believe that he's a god because look how all these things serve his purposes. He had plenty of silver and gold and, and resources like bronze and, and iron and wood and stone. But, but these, these gods, they can't, they can't provide, they can't protect, they, they can't guard and guide, right? When was the last time you pulled a $5 bill out of your, out of your wallet and, and, and turned to it and said, okay, help me figure out how to go through this how to overcome this, this situation, how to, how to find comfort in this time of, of devastation, right? Never. Job was right when he acknowledged that the life of every living being and the breath of all mankind is in the hand of the one true God. There is one true God in whom is all of life. So this is a truth, a hard, fast, objective truth that our world doesn't want to believe, that at times our actions betray our belief, that we say this, but our actions tell a different story. Job was right. The life of every living being and the breath of all mankind is in the hand of the one true 
God. But this, this objective truth doesn't stop Belshazzar from worshiping false gods. And it doesn't, sadly, it doesn't stop us either. See, we can't help serving the God of our calendars. We, we can't help but, but respond to the God of pride and, and accomplishment, the God of, uh, of our bank accounts, or the God of our comfort and our security. Now, quick side note, these things are not necessarily wrong. The emphasis is when we, when we allow them to take the place of being a God in our lives. I need a bank account. We all need a source of income. God provides those things for us. They are not our gods. God is God, and he provides the things we need, and we are, we are blessed to receive them and, and thankful to offer them back to him for his glory. And so we can't help but, but, but be servants of, uh, of what's urgent and what's, what, what, what's overcoming us with the demands of this world, the, the gods of our calendars and things like that. But, but how often do we work to satisfy and honor these gods rather than acknowledge the God who created them and created us? See, regardless of where you're at with us this morning, it's clear from our passage that Belshazzar did not trust in God's sovereignty. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. His days were numbered, and he'd been measured and found wanting, lacking. His life had come up short. And so his kingdom was lost to him. But, but this is not so with Daniel's story, right? Daniel's a man who, who lived out the prayer of Moses, a prayer, a posture of living before God, where in Psalm 90, he, he prays, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, right? A, a, a life where he looked to God and said, God, show me the way, show me the life I have, and teach me to use the time and the space and the days for your glory. Every day of his life was, a, was seen as a gift and a provision from God. So, so with this idea in mind that Daniel's this kind of man, let me offer you two insights in, in two quick ways in which Daniel shows us how we too can live in light of God's sovereignty every day of every year. First of all, remember God. Remember what he's done in the past. Remember what he's doing now. I'm not saying remember what he's doing now like you've forgotten, but remember, make sure remember what you see in those moments where God reveals himself, shows up. Remember that. Make a note. Remind yourself to remember this because it's important. Remember what God has done, not just in your past, but remember what God has done throughout the course of history in his people's lives. If God provides for the people of God in the wilderness as he leads them out of slavery in Egypt, he's going to provide for you as you wander through the wilderness by faith in him. I mean, partially I'm saying that spiritually, but, but trust him to provide. Don't you be the, the, the person who defines what it means to be provided for. Let him define that because he's that kind of sovereign God who will. Daniel teaches us to remember God. Shortly after Daniel is called before Belshazzar, he begins to give him the interpretation. Listen to what he says. Notice, notice that it's not Belshazzar who calls to memory what God had done through the life of Nebuchadnezzar. It's Daniel, right? Listen to verse 18 through 21. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness 
and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him, and he was driven from, the, the, from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was, was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. It's Daniel who remembers God, who remembers what God has done, who remembers what God did with Nebuchadnezzar and recognizes that it's Belshazzar who's recommitting the sins of the past of his father, right? He recognizes who God is. Church, we have a short-term memory problem. I, I, I have a short-term memory problem. I can think back in my life to many moments where I thought, man, can life get any harder or worse than this? And yet, God shows up. He cares for me. He provides for me. He protects me. He gives me wisdom. And you know what happens next time I deal with one of those difficult situations? What do I say? I'm going to call on the Lord? No, I say, God, can life get any more difficult than this? I've got a short-term memory problem. We have a short-term memory problem as we face this world, as we, as we learn to live by faith day by day. It's so easy to forget who we are and whose we are. It's so easy to forget when, when, when times get really hard and, and we feel despair and hopelessness. It's easy to forget whose child we are. And, and don't get me wrong, I understand why that's a challenge, partially because it's not this momentary affliction that we go through. I mean, yes, Scripture talks about our time in this world being a light momentary affliction, but it's light and momentary in, the, in, in light of eternity, in the span of eternity. But our felt experience in this world, as we face afflictions, is it's not so momentary. And in our pain, it's so easy to forget whose we are. It's so easy to forget who God is and what he's about. This past week, Pastor Moses and I were talking about how it seems that we've kind of lost the art of meditation. The, the, we've lost the art of remembering God and who he is and whose we are. And we were, we're talking, when we talked about meditation, we weren't talking about this gentle music and this quiet space where we can empty our minds of all our worries and concerns. We're talking about this, the art of meditation where we focus on God, where we remember him, where we, where, where we call to memory the many ways that he has been at work and his power and majesty and his love for his people. You see, the Psalms remind us of what it means to live this kind of blessed life where this, the, this memory is always at our fingertips. Or it's on the tip of our tongue, just on the outskirts of our ears to, to call to memory, to bring in close when, when we need it. This is a blessed life. In Psalm 1, we're told, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But get this. His delight is on, in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This is Daniel. 
you know, we'll, we'll get to this next week, but Daniel was the kind of guy that he, he had rhythms and rituals in how he related to God. Not once a week, but daily. He, he, he meditated on the word of God. He met with God. Daniel was the kind of man that, that, that called to memory frequently who God is and what he's done and what he's promised to do. The problem is our headspace is overfilled, right? I mean, you're, you're, you, you probably, uh, and I don't blame you for this, but, I mean, it's hard to take in all that I've kind of fire-hosed at you this morning, right? There's a lot of information we've talked about. Our headspace is already full before we come in here on a Sunday morning. Our, our minds are already off and running before our feet hit the ground any, on any given day, right? So the question is, what's filling up your mind and your thoughts? I mean, they don't have to. Paul talks in, in, in Corinthians about taking every thought captive. You know, just because the thought is there in your mind doesn't mean it has to be, church. We have a decision to make. We have a choice to make. What do we want to fill our hearts and our minds with? And what do we want to say? Nope, stay out. I don't, I don't want to welcome those thoughts. I don't want to give space to think about those things. Maybe it is about how someone hurt you or someone said something or, or maybe it's about, you know, some movie or song you want to listen to, right? It could be anything. But you, God's given you the, 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 the strength through his Holy Spirit to take every thought captive to make that decision what you want to fill your mind with and what you don't want to. And know, as in Psalm 1, we have an invitation to meditate on the law, meditate on the word of God day and night. See, I think Daniel shows us that the first step to living in light of God's sovereignty is remembering God, remembering him rightly so that we don't forget that, that, that we're not God. We don't forget uh, that, that God is not on the throne. We remember that God is always on the throne. The throne of our lives and the throne of this world. And lastly, Daniel shows us that living in light of God's sovereignty means that we live for God and not for the re rewards that other people offer us. You know, Belshazzar wanted to pay Daniel to interpret the, hand, uh, the handwriting on the wall. Now, this is not a noble offer of, of um, you know, rendering payment for services or something like this. Daniel knows that if Belshazzar gave him a title in his kingdom and gold riches before the interpretation comes, that Belshazzar expected a favorable interpretation, right? Belshazzar wanted to, wanted to pay Daniel to, to give him a good outcome. But Daniel doesn't worship King Belshazzar. Daniel is a servant of God. And, and there was going to be nothing that he would be more faithful to than the interpretation that God gave him. Daniel lived for God alone. No earthly treasure could compare with that eternal security and heavenly riches that were his in walking with God. And so living in light of God's sovereignty is foregoing the temptation of earthly riches for the greater treasure of our relationship with God. See, in the end, Daniel was still given the rewards that Belshazzar offered, but they weren't contingent on his interpretation, right? Church, there are moments where we need to make a decision Am I doing this to, 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 to please man, or am I doing this to honor God? Am I doing this because I'm afraid of what man might think of me, or am I doing this 
to honor God, to worship him, to, to, to rightly place him as God over my life. In the end, as I mentioned, Daniel was still given the rewards. And Belshazzar as well received a reward. That night he was, he was killed, and the kingdom transfers power to the Medes and the Persians. See, church, central to living in light of God's sovereignty is learning to trust that God is God and we are not. We are his creation. That's a good thing, right? It's not a bad thing that we've been created to be subordinate to a God. Because you know what can happen if you take the role of God in your life. You've seen it, you've witnessed it, you've experienced it. You've seen the outcome of your own effort in thinking that you are above God. It's good for us to know that we are not God, but we are the creation of God. We are his. We're his treasure. We're his children. We're the ones whom he wants to bestow upon good gifts. So remember this. Every day, remember who God is, that God is your God who has led you up out of the land of slavery to sin and leads us to a spiritual home, a spiritual land flowing with milk and honey. So I think this morning what we glean from chapter 5 is that we understand that Belshazzar is a warning for us of the life living, uh, living having lived flippantly toward God, casually toward God. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, we're told this. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Don't boast in yourself. Don't, don't, don't boast in what you've accomplished. Don't, don't even boast in your knowledge of the word of God. That's probably a, a greater risk of sin for some of us. Boast in the truth that God is sovereign, and he's a sovereign who wants to be known by you and he knows you. Don't make the same failures as Belshazzar did. Don't, don't live as if God is not real. Don't walk around declaring God is holy, God is great. But then your actions betray that because they reveal that you don't actually believe in your heart that God is real, that he is your creator, that you are his creation, and that he is sovereign, not just over you, but over this world. Don't be afraid of this world. Live in fear and respect of the God who created it and who sustained it. Church, a healthy pastor truly wants to see the people of God not living in support of the pastor or, or, or the pastor's plans, a healthy pastor wants to see the people of God living out of the depth of their being in light of God's sovereignty, day by day, remembering who God is, trusting in him, and looking to him to provide all that they need.
So let God be sovereign. And then let's live in light of him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, uh, that you are sovereign. And Lord, we start from this place of confession. Forgive me for those times that I have not honored you as God. Where I have been selfish and prideful and forgotten you when I should be remembering you of every day of every year. Forgive me for those times that I have been too casual about my relationship with you day in and day out of responding to you, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, for those other gods that I have fallen into temptation to worship and to honor, where I found security in my bank account or where I have been too selfish and guarded with my calendar and see it as mine rather than as yours. Forgive me for those places where I have guarded and, guided, or guarded and protected my resources for my own purposes rather than for your glory. Lord, I want to choose this day to serve you, to walk with you by faith, to trust your sovereignty and your, your kingship over me. You are a good king. I choose you, Lord. May we all confess this truth that not only have we walked astray from you in these areas, not only have we honored and, and acknowledged the, the good doctrines of the Christian faith, but we've disregarded them in living them out day to day. And then, Lord, may we confess that you truly are sovereign over our lives. Teach us to live in light of your sovereignty, not just obediently, but joyously and generously to, to embrace the goodness of your steadfast love and faithfulness, your justice and your righteousness. Thank you, Father, for your love for us that even when we were yet sinners, you died for us so that we can live in light of your kingdom and your kingship. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about what it means to meditate on God's sovereignty and his might, this last piece was penned in the 1860s set to a Welsh tune by a Scottish theologian. And the words just ring as true, and I hope that they'll find a space in your heart as you give your praise to the Lord throughout the week. Please stand and join in singing, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise.
seated. Good morning, everyone. I have a couple announcements for you. First, I want to give thanks for yesterday. We had our church work day, and we have some fun slides to show you in a minute of that. We had an amazing turnout, so I just want to, on behalf of the staff here and the ops team, just say thank you so much. We got a lot done, and I love a check mark next to a to-do list, and so we had a lot of check marks. <laughs> and so we want to thank you guys for that. There, thank you. Thank you. Um, I might be a little bit biased, but it was so cute. The cuties with the wagon yesterday with Miss D taking a picture just made my heart smile. <laughs> um, so with the month of June comes VBS here at Trinity. Uh, historically, we've done VBS in the evenings, so it's 6.30 to 8.30 because we like to give an opportunity for all sorts of volunteers, people um, after work or people who are in school during the day can come in the evening. Um, and it's this year, it's June 27th through the 30th. Uh, we just want you to check that. It's four days instead of five because of the long weekend coming after that. And the registration is open, Yahoo. So for kids age four through grade five, you can register on our website, you can go on our app, and you can also register on our weekly email. So we encourage you to do that. Um, one thing Miss Donna asked me to do this morning is ask for volunteers. I said, hey, Donna, why don't you come up? And she said, no, thank you, because <laughs> she doesn't like speaking in front of people. So she does need some more volunteers. So we just asked that you would consider that. Specifically, she needs one more classroom volunteer. So if you have a stirring in your heart that you like hanging out with kids, you like teaching them about Jesus, and this would be a great place for you, you can even pick a buddy that you would want to work with and do that. I know that I always like to have that security buddy blanket there, too. Um, um, and she also needs classroom helpers. She needs a few rec helpers and a craft helper or two. So if you're interested in doing that, she just asks that you come see her after service and or next week or email her. And lastly, we'll be having a baby dedication on June 19th, which is Father's Day, which is super sweet. And uh, if you're interested in having your baby dedicated, we ask that you reach out to Becca Polanco in the office or see Pastor Dan or reply to our weekly email. There'll be a Zoom head, uh, held for those parents just to go over what the expectations are of that. So again, if you're interested in having your baby dedicated, please reach out to the office. Thank you. Isn't she cute? Church, would you stand as we close our service this morning with this benediction? Church, may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be the, filled with all the fullness of God. Live in light of his sovereignty. Amen. Go in peace. <laughs>